Yeah, it gets live when those hand claps come in. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine expecting the crowd to do that? <laughs> and you, at the right time. <laughs> do you think he practices the hand claps with the audience before this song at every concert? <laughs> yeah, for like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, all right, guys, it's easy. Let's work through this no, real quick. No, guys, the third time. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's three minutes into the seven and a half minute song. You can't miss it. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and uh, you guys know that I've been, of course, working on my unifying theory of everything designed to completely revolutionize the self-help industry. Yes, yes, we know that all too well. All too well. Well, it's not quite done. I'm getting close, but I'm excited to announce that I have at least come up with a name. And I have decided them to call it Whole Thrust. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah, like W-H-O-L-E. You know, you thrust your whole being into the unknown, into the future. Oh, wow. I think it's a great name. I'm, I'm, I don't Jeremy. want any critiques. I think it's perfect. <laughs> Jeremy looks nonplussed. And, yeah. And I actually was nonplussed because I said nothing. <laughs> yeah, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody Spicy. loves it all right cool thank you i'm yeah. excited wow perfect <laughs> well i'm co-host jeremy and i don't know if you heard about the war party going on peter but my why, f- why are you addressing me specifically i'm worried well, already <laughs> that's because my friends like eddie grant don't want to go you think i could get a ride oh I see now. Yes, I did. For our listeners, I Jeremy's car is in the shop, and we just dropped it off before we started recording, and I drove him home. And that's a Weezer reference, mashed up with an Eddie Grant song reference, Peter. I missed the Weezer one. Oh, the on the sweater song. What did you say? Hey, <laughs> hey repeat the joke. Party. It'll be funnier. Oh, that you're way. it's you're. I see. You're 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 referencing the dialogue between uh, Matt Sharp. And one of the sisters, <laughs> Michael or Carly, in the opening of Undone the Sweater Song. Correct. <laughs> or, or actually, I think that's the, mid, the middle break. The, that is the, the middle break. The intro is Carl Cook and Matt Sharp. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Peter, are you rescuing yourself from not catching a Weezer reference? Are you like <laughs> making sure you can keep your place in the fan club? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the joke is so much funnier now. <laughs> Your turn, Peter. <laughs> All right. Yeah. The joke is so funny. I think the joke's on me. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I am the foremost expert on KTEL compilation albums. Do tell. Well, KTEL were essentially the Spotify of the 70s. It's how their compilations that they put out for a bargain were how a lot of people first heard songs. They would feature both popular songs and ones that regionally might not have reached you. The more you know (laughs) with Peter Cook. Yeah. I think that might be relevant, though. Might it, Peter? It might just be. Are you going to save why till later? Yeah, I'll save that for just a little bit later because I think we should get to our... I think I know. We should get to our guest. We have a guest in the house. We've made him sit through so much already. Is that... (laughs) I'm told that we have Sean's doppelganger... Hey, guys. ...back in the house, Shane Hartman. Yep. Hey, guys. It's uh, great to be back among my equals, and I just feel like something electric's going to happen on this podcast (laughs) tonight, so... Love it. Let's make it happen. Let's rock on down to the rest of this podcast. (laughs) Well, Shane, what album did you bring for us today? So I've been a fan of Eddie Grant for a long time now. And uh, a while back when Sean reached out to me about doing this, 
we talked about what album we might do, and I think uh, Killer on the Rampage was the first one that came up because that's the obvious choice with um, Eddie Grant's big hit, Electric Avenue, that everybody knows. But uh, I decided I wanted to take like a deeper cut, another album that's uh, a dollar bin all the way, but came out a little bit before that album, and I think it's just as good, if not better, and shed a little light on it. It's called, what is it called? It's called My Turn to Love You, at least on the U.S. release, and it was released around the world as Love and Exile. But yeah, this album's great, and uh, I'm super psyched to discuss Eddie Grant with you guys because I just nerd out about him to anybody who will listen. Looking forward to this. All right, well, before we nerd out, which song should we start with? set the tone i think we were going to start with the first track and the title track my turn to love you all right sign a track one assuming that the track order is the same in the uk and the us i'm not actually sure but my turn to love you This song is like disco, like in the best sense of that word. You know, I feel like people are coming back around to what disco music can be, you know, instead of just like assuming it's all terrible. And man, this this song really makes a case. It's just like an extended jam. You got that repetitive groove, the cowbell, just everything about it. Yeah, and for me, disco is best when you are bringing in a wide pool of influences to the sound like at the surface that's a basic disco track but the more you listen to it there's latin and african percussion elements going on there his vocal delivery is very atypical oh yeah a lot of the guitar work sounds like more new wave than disco and yet it all just works so perfectly and has this interesting compelling sound to it that a lot of disco didn't quite have especially in 1980 you know people were jumping off the disco ship pretty quick and a lot of it was sounding kind of stale at this point, except for the handful of artists that were breathing new life into it. Yeah, this was 1980. I was surprised by that track when I put this album on by its sound because, you know, the little bit I knew by Eddie Grant, didn't I didn't have any indication that he did something like that straight up dancey and disco. I, you know, there's always Electric Avenue. That's yeah, a few, say, is, is the little bit you knew Electric Avenue and not much else? Because that no. would be probably the majority yeah. of people's <laughs> relationship with Eddie Grant. That's actually that's the most of the U.S. at least. Yeah. The song that I mainly associated with him was Living on the Frontline. Interesting. Oddly enough. Because, this is funny, Shane, the last time that you were on talking about Johnny Nash, 
I knew Johnny Nash, his version of Stir It Up from the Best of Reggae KTEL oh, compilation. Right, right. right. That, oh, yeah. that, that I, it was the first <laughs> CD I ever owned. My father bought that for me when I got a Discman for Christmas in 1993. And so, yeah, Johnny Nash and Eddie Grant, I both know from that KTEL Best of Reggae <laughs> CD. KTEL did you right. Yeah, KTEL did me right. So I became, you know, the historian. The expert on KTEL as a result of that, even though that's still like, I think the only KTEL I actually own <laughs> to be real. But, um, yeah, so, you know, I had no idea. I, I don't know if I really knew that, uh, Electric Avenue was Eddie Grant. Uh, I knew the song obviously, but yeah, living on the front line is mainly what I knew to be him. Also a killer tune. Yeah. But very different from what we just listened to. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing with Eddie that we're going to find is he's got such a huge range of material, even on just this album. I mean, there's similarities between it all, but man, he's, he goes a lot of places on this record and <laughs> throughout really his does. whole career. <laughs> uh, actually, I found this quote by him that I wanted to read because it kind of sums that up. Like, he, he's just like a master of fusing things, you know, like everything. He just pulls it in and like puts it together in a way. But I found this this clip, uh, this interview that I had shared with Jeremy that's fantastic, like an hour long. But at one point he says, I've come out of so many cultures and I've imbibed so much music and it all goes around in my head all of the time that I don't feel uncomfortable with any music at all. And that is what I make. That's Eddie Grant music. It's not pop, reggae, ska. It's not calypso. It's an amalgam of all the musics that I've ever heard in this world, and I distill it and make it possible for other people to see themselves in it. And I thought that was like, that really sums up what his music means to me, because he just, he like takes everything that I love and kind of jams it together yeah. in this way that I've never heard anybody else quite do. That's, that's so great, and it uh, very different result, but it reminds me of the genre approach of the band war who considered oh, yeah. their music to be universal street music absolutely well the the mashing of musics definitely comes from eddie's background and we're going to get to his background but first it is february and we are obliged to mention that it is our patreon push happening right now as we speak, as you listen, listener. That's right. So throughout the month of February, if you sign up for our Patreon, you will get cool bonus swag in addition to the regular content that you'll receive as a Patreon subscriber. So we're going to go through each of our tiers, talk about what you'll get regularly as well as what you'll receive for signing up in the month of February 2023. So we have our $1 tier, which is our early access tier. And for pledging $1 a month, you will receive our main episodes a few days in advance of when they go up on the platforms for everyone else. So you can be the coolest kid in your classroom talking yeah, about... And we have direct confirmation. Everyone that gets our early episodes, all of their friends have noted that there's just something indefinably cooler about them ever since that point. So... You yeah, know, the the research is in. It works. Proven for, product for one dollar a month. You, <laughs> yeah, your whole life could change. Yeah, and it, in addition to that, you'll have a cool "I'd buy that for a dollar" sticker you can put on your trapper keeper. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what you'll receive for signing up in the month of February 2023. And of course, it goes without saying that anyone already signed up at the Patreon will receive this cool swag limited edition swag automatically and at our five dollar tier which is our bonus episodes tier you'll get that early access and you'll get our bonus episodes where we talk for usually about half an hour or so about singles 45s seven inches whatever you want to call them the smaller records. We talk about those. We don't do as deep a dive, a little more casual. I believe, Shane, you've checked out some of those. Oh, yeah. Those are so much fun. And I mean, for four more bucks, come on, man. 
get that extra content. And it's, it's the, our, as somebody who collects a lot of 45s, I was really excited to dig into those. And I, I, I was a little bit late to the game. So I had several episodes I could just kind of burn through. And I, I, I binged the, <laughs> those in like a day, but, uh, I really, uh, yeah, you guys are doing a good thing here and people should, uh, put in a few bucks and help these fellas out. You will get some cool swag. I can attest to that too. So um, for just pennies a day, you can yep. <laughs> help these three poor podcasters continue our crusade of knowledge. Money well spent. <laughs> and with that money well spent for signing up in the month of February, 2023 over at patreoncom slash I'd buy that podcast. You can get the sticker as well as an I'd buy that for a dollar limited edition button. So check that out. At the $10 tier, you can get the exclusive monthly mix where each of us, we rotate each month and we put together a mix of music related to the artist that we feature for that month, usually about an hour long. And we put a lot of work into those. They're not just tossed off. Oh yeah. You and Sean do all vinyl, right? Yeah, we I I keep it exclusive to what I have in my collection. I don't use the internet, but I think you can use the internet, Jeremy. I know I do. I'm all digital. <laughs> <laughs> I ripped, He's embraced I ripped, the future. Yeah, I ripped yeah. the records because you gave me the equipment and the know-how to do so. <laughs> True. I've been figuring that out this past year, ever since we upgraded that tier. That's we've been doing that tier for a year. That's the ten dollar tier exclusive monthly mix and you'll get the sticker the button and rad tote bag you can go record shopping with true shane already said that he got compliments on his from last from year last i did year. i sure did and i always take it when i go to the flea market it's my uh savior so i'm not uh trying to lug records around in a paper bag yeah and if you want to be cooler than the one dollar tier people who are already cool and you want that like superstar quality that's how you get it <laughs> with that rad tote bag with that rad tote bag <laughs> you can put your trapper keeper with the sticker in it in that tote bag <laughs> and pin the button right on the tote bag yeah man we're like just gearing everyone up to be the coolest person yeah. in their town we're developing your life for you <laughs> and if that all isn't enough if you want to be even better than all that, we have our super fan tier, the vinyl subscription tier. For $25 a month, you pledge that, you will receive a record and a 45 and a handwritten note from us here at I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Well, specifically from Sean. <laughs> yes, that's true. Although he's going to help me write some of the notes now. So nice. I'm getting in on this. We're, we're yeah. expanding how, many, how much reach we have. Peter's ghostwriting the content. I'm out here in the mean streets of Philadelphia, scrounging through these dollar bins, finding some cool stuff just for our Patreon subscribers. Only the best. Yeah. And, and you get the mixes and the 45 episodes and the early access. You get it all. Yeah. And for signing up in the month of February 2023, you will get the sticker. You will get the button. You will get the tote bag. And you'll get... An exclusive, I'd buy that for a dollar, season four, coffee mug. Yeah, you can have your morning, your thrift store coffee in the mug, open, just making everybody nervous while carrying your tote bag and all that other stuff. Wait, what is thrift store coffee? You, you guys, know, when you're at the thrift store, you're sipping your coffee. Yeah. Oh, okay. A coffee that you take into the thrift store, not like, I just yeah. thrifted this cup of coffee. <laughs> I'm, I'm I mean, such a bargain hunter. Vintage. <laughs> if you're innovative, yeah, you bring coffee in, find one of the old coffee makers. <laughs> yeah, you plug it into the wall. I just got to test it out. I'm just going <laughs> to brew a pot real quick, see if this $5 coffee maker is really worth it. All of our swag for this season, season four, is designed by artist and illustrator Ellen Vandermeid, as has been done in previous seasons. Brilliant. She did my friend's album cover and did a brilliant job on that, too. Yeah. Yeah, not to be messed with. Not to be messed with. Don't even think about it. 
And of course, those designs can now be viewed on our social media, Instagram at I'd Buy That Podcast and Facebook.com. Search for I'd Buy That for a dollar. Give us a like. You'll see all the cool stuff you can get for signing up over at Patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast in the month of February 2023. Sign up now because once this offer is gone, it's gone. Yeah. And if you don't, just get on your phone that you're already listening to right now. Just sign up right now, because if you wait till later, you'll get distracted doing something else, and you'll forget to do it. You can find that link in the show notes. Yeah, just just go do it right now. All right. Well, let us return to Eddie Grant. True. Let's uh, give a little background on why this dude meshes like a thousand different musics together flawlessly. Eddie Grant was born in Placence, Guyana, March 5th, 1948, and moved to Linden later on. Not London. Linden. Not London yet. <laughs> Linden. But he began playing his father's trumpet at age five. He would go, like, take it out from under the bed and start kind of figuring it out. And his father tried to discourage him from music early on. And he really wanted him to become like a lawyer or something. And a doctor. Doctor, yeah. yeah his he was father. Hung up on being a doctor. Yeah. Dr. Grant, like Jurassic Park. It's got a good ring. <laughs> <laughs> because his dad was a musician and knew that it's a. Uh, it's a hard way to make money. It's, it's uh, not the good life, financially speaking. Yeah, I was going to say his father must have been a musician if he was discouraging him from it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, so he's trying to discourage his son from music, and his, his dad's friends apparently like witnessed him kind of learning music and stuff, and they're just like laughing at him like, no, this dude's a musician. <laughs> You're screwed. <laughs> yeah. No getting around it. Yeah, he would apparently sit around and watch his father's band whenever he had the chance and kind of, you know, ask them about how to play chords and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. He was, he was very curious. It was, it was obvious early on that he was going to be a musician. For sure. And his parents moved to London at some point. And he was still in Guyana for a little while until age 12 when they brought him to London to live with them in 1960. And it's in London where Eddie Grant sees Chuck Berry for the first time. And that just like shifted his world. That was it. He knew he had to be a musician when he saw that. I mean, he already had the calling, but I think, from what I understood, that was like a formative experience for him. Yeah. Yeah. He he's called himself a Chuck Berry nut, <laughs> quote from that interview. He, he was really just all about it. Nuts and berries. Yeah. So he had a, a shop class teacher at his school help him make a guitar out of wood for his first guitar, and... Once he did that, his dad was like, okay, I'll get you an amplifier. <laughs> like, <laughs> I get it. There's no stopping this. Yep. From that point, he's starting to get into blues music and rock music as a result of that. He was already pretty familiar with, like, calypso music from back in Guyana. And his dad is showing him a bunch of African music. So he's learning sort of those polyrhythms and kind of far out type rhythms so that's where all these things are hitting him right at this formative age he's like different influences that i think is pretty core to who he is and the music he made yeah and it you can hear all of that stuff colliding together in his entire career of music yeah yeah guyana is an interesting spot because it's of where it's at in, in South America. It's kind of like it gets that cross-pollination from like all of the Caribbean and South America. So, 
you know, imagine spending 12 years in that and then, you know, you're hearing rock and roll and man, he, he just, he had so much that he was pulling into it. So it's, it's uh, no wonder that it came out to be such an interesting, like gumbo. Yeah. So at age 17, he decides to start uh, like a band that would get super huge. <laughs> It was one of the early multiracial bands in the UK called The Equals, and they had a number one hit with Baby Come Back. Yeah, not to be confused with the, uh, is it player who does the other Baby Come Back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I actually looked that song up because I was like, wait, is that song a cover of this somehow? <laughs> and it's not at all. Not yeah. quite. <laughs> The Equals song is excellent, though. I was listening to more of that band uh, while researching this Eddie Grant record, and that was, I'd seen him around and heard that name, but man, it's its excellent stuff. Kinda, <laughs> they are so good. It's like a more garagey Sly and the Family Stone almost. Like, not quite as funk, but it's got that multiracial element, and there's different musical aspects going on. Obviously, like more of a kind of a UK conglomerate of music than US or West Coast. Yeah, it's got that kind of mod flavored like who kind of garage rock mixed with you know soul music really great band yeah they had a cool song i liked called police on my back that the, is it the clash the clash ended up doing a cover of it in yeah. 1980 on their album sandinista yeah and yeah so that's a budding uh some budding political statements in Eddie Graham very early on, which, I mean, also to an extent, though, having a band called The Equals that's a multiracial band is a pretty strong political statement in itself right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And Eddie was not the lead singer of that band. He was background vocals and lead guitar. Right. Correct, yeah. There's some amazing footage. Uh, I don't know if it's still out there, but from I think it was like from a German television show or something it's black and white and he has like a, a mini afro that's like bleached white and he's playing guitar with his teeth and wow it's just you know and this was this was pretty early these guys were together in the late 60s he was he was already kind of pushing ahead doing his own thing yeah and that all kind of came to a stop in 1971 when Grant, Eddie Grant suffered a heart attack at age 23, which when I first read that, I was like, oh no, was he like a partier or something? Like who has a heart attack at 23? But it turns out he was not a partier at all. And in fact, was just like working himself to the bone and they think there might've been like a genetic condition type thing going on as well. But fortunately, he survived. Yeah, he survived, but the equals kind of ended, and he pulled away from like live performing, and it seems like he kind of pulled back to sort of regroup himself there. It sounds like there was a lot of pressure on the equals, too. They were one of those bands, you know, the tons of competition in the garage rock pop rock world and they had one huge hit and then nothing else that came close to it and we're just trying to relive that hit and man it's got to be hard for a young band trying to be creative under this like intense pressure like that yeah yeah i think they they did pretty well for themselves in europe and you know like you said having a heart attack <laughs> that'll that'll take you out of the game it, even before that they were they were in some bad car wreck um, where he was like thrown from the windshield and then they kind of got funny about touring after that. And then shortly mm -hmm. after that's when he had, had like a heart attack. I don't think they, they, they didn't officially break up, but they definitely did not go on as the same band. I think some of the other guys kept maybe played some gigs and he, he still had a hand in kind of, uh, writing for them and producing for them and actually some of their later albums which I'll, I'll mention later on are amazing and kind of lean harder into the funk and they actually sound more like eddie grant's solo stuff than than the kind of garage rock soul mix that the earlier equal stuff does 
for sure. Well, let's get to another song, and uh, then we'll pick up on his history after that. What did you want to play next, Shane? This tune, I just want to say a couple words about it before we play it, because this was like one of those songs that when I discovered, I just like was obsessed with it. And he's recorded a couple versions of this song. There's one from his solo LP in 1975, and then he recorded a version with the Equals on their 1978 album called Mystic Sister, both of which are amazing records, but definitely not Dollar Ben, unless you get crazy lucky. But this tune, I think when I first got hooked into it, it was because it was a B-side of Electric Avenue as this tune called Time Warp. And it sounds like a dance tune from the future. And I was just like, holy shit, what is this? And then I realized that it was the backing track for this actual track that we're getting ready to hear. Nobody's got time. Looking at side A, track four. that could have just as easily been a grace jones song i think they had similar approaches to broadening the boundaries of dance music especially in this like late 70s early 80s disco club sound and just adding these other elements in and taking it further than other people had and it didn't work out for a lot of artists experimenting and uh, making experimental disco stuff. I mean, we did that Nona Hendrix record that just was lost and other examples of people operating outside the norm that just doesn't always catch on. And man, there's a lot of Eddie Grant material that is waiting to be rediscovered. Yeah, that, that synth bass in that song is... Oh my God. <laughs> so good. <laughs> And the crazy thing is he played everything on here except for the drums and those uh, female vocals, which aren't credited on the back of the record. But it's just, it's and it's actually pretty minimalist. It's just the, those drums and then like that gurgling synth bass that's like ducking in and out and like weaving with the other clavinet or synth or whatever that is. It's just, and then he's got this James Brown approach where it's just, he creates this hypnotic groove that just... It's relentless and it's mm -hmm. repetitive and you you have to just hear it and move. And one of the signature elements of Eddie Grant is there's always like a little bit of anger or menace in his vocal delivery at times. Oh, like yeah. it's not completely aggro, but he's just, man, he's putting everything into these songs. 
Yeah, it has like a bluesy growl almost there. Mm-hmm. Kind of mixed with like a danciness. Yeah, it's wild concoctions he comes up with. I just wanted to mention, because we didn't get to it in the clip, but it's like this is a long tune and like towards the end like these timbales come in and like this ripping like harmonica solo that's for like the last two or three minutes of the song and you're like where did that come from again adding to that like kind of bluesy organic feel with this like almost robotic backing track that's gurgling and like chugging along it's uh it's just he just knows how to like combine those organic elements with that electronic element to get like this really unique sound. It doesn't sound forced. I don't know. I love it. Yeah. He's a natural <laughs> musician. Yeah. A lot of the tracks go well beyond the five minute mark. And often there's like guitar shredding and other shreddings that start happening. Yeah. Like four or five minutes into it. <laughs> We're not even going to get to in these two minute clips. <laughs> right. And he's, a, he, that's the other thing. He's a really, really unique guitar player. Like that's one of the first things I noticed about him when I started checking him out is he has this really, like his voice, you know, it's, it's like when you hear it, it's unmistakable. He has this really biting kind of tone and his guitar is usually like really dry and yeah, um, it's just, he has a sound, you know? Yeah. I didn't realize that was him playing it. The first guitar thing from him that I remember hearing as a kid was, did you guys ever see Romancing the Stone with Michael Douglas and uh, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito? That's so funny. I, 80s hit. I saw that, yeah, he. I saw that that was mentioned with, he had a song in there. And I. that's one of the big movies of the 80s that like, I feel like I'm the only one that, who's never seen it. I have. Well, I've, I've never seen it either. All right, all three of us. Oh well, check <laughs> wow. it, check out the check out the theme song. I'm a little bit older than you guys, so it was it was pretty standard for me coming up. But that and that theme song was kind of like his follow up hit, sort of to uh, Electric Avenue. You know, after that, he did that. He had the the soundtrack title song for Romancing the Stone and the guitar uh, solo on that tune. It just he just rips. It's just really. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It, it almost feels like it shouldn't fit the song, but it does because it's Eddie Grant. Uh, but it has that that Eddie Grant sound. You know, he just has a guitar sound that's that's really his own, which is something hard to do. Well, let's jump back into Eddie's timeline. He's just had a heart attack. He's kind of regrouping, and in 1974. He starts his own studio called Coach House, where he's focusing on recording British reggae artists. And he also starts a record label that same year, Ice Records, in 1974. Yeah, because yeah, reggae was huge in Britain. Yeah. And he was, he was all up in the mix with that, too. Actually, even earlier than Ice... In 1970, he had uh, started this label called Torpedo with the, uh, another guy that I, I'm blanking on his name, but they started this label that was kind of at the beginning of grassroots UK reggae production. And those records right now are really like kind of sought after by collectors. In fact, he wrote a song that you guys may have heard of if you've ever heard any Prince Buster songs. So Prince Buster has a song, it's a famous rude reggae tune called Rough Rider, and it was covered by the English Beat, actually, later on. A lot of people uh, attribute that tune to Prince Buster, but actually Eddie Grant wrote that tune and recorded it with the equals under uh, a, a different name because their label president thought it was too kind of raunchy. So they made him like <laughs> release it. They released it as the four G's, but it was basically the equals playing this tune Rough Rider, which if you've never uh, checked that out, go check that one out. Like I said, Prince Buster does a version and then the English beat famously covered it on their first album too. Yeah. I've been thinking the English beat or a band that we could cover at some point, because last I knew those records are still really cheap. Yeah, some of them are real easy to find, for and, sure. And quite good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks for that added nugget there. 
Yeah, most folks don't know he's he was really involved in the early reggae scene there. He was a big promoter of it. So, just wanted to sneak that in. Yeah. Well, he put out his first solo album, a self-titled album in 1975. And it uh didn't didn't have a huge impact. Wasn't a big seller. His second album It's 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 so hard to find that like it seemed like even the majority of bio info I found didn't even mention it. Like his first record, Message Man from 77. It's like, no, it was his second record. <laughs> if you can find it, it is well worth it. <laughs> I will tell you that. Canada has copies for some reason. There's a lot up there, but that record is amazing. It's very good. Yeah, I haven't actually heard it at all. So I'll have to It's hard to find. find it. I mean, you can find uh, his version of Nobody's Got Time. Uh, which is so sick. It's it has the same feel as that one, but it's just like straight funk. You know, it's just a it's a band. There's no real. There might be one kind of synth in there, but it's it's mostly just bass and drums and him screaming and and some horns that come in. Yeah. Um, but that tune is one you can find off that first album. But uh, most of the other tunes they they don't even show up on the on you know like YouTube or anywhere. They're hard to find. Yeah, I saw that Nobody's Got Time, which we just listened to. The version on this album was not the first version of right. that song. He had done it on that album, too, earlier. And Yeah, it, it was tough listening, previewing this album, because the one that we're listening to today, even, because it, I just had to go to YouTube and find the, the rips of it on there, because <laughs> it was yeah. not on the digital streaming services. There's a reason for that, but... We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so he put that out. His second album, similarly, is not quite as obscure, but also was not a big hit. And then his third solo album is the one that broke through for him into the mainstream, Walking on Sunshine in 1979, which led to his top 20 hit in the UK and the song that Peter first heard, Living on the front line. Yep. The definitive Eddie Grant song, because I heard it when I was 13. <laughs> yeah. Which also has some killer synth bass. The yeah. synth bass line on that one is a monster. Yeah. Yeah, I was re-listening to that, and I was like, man, that grooves. <laughs> and that brings us to this album, which was the follow-up to his big breakthrough hit album, my Turn to Love You, or Love in Exile, if you're not in America. And this came out in 1980, as we mentioned. It was Eddie's fourth album. Yeah, I was confused when I was looking at his discography. I was like, they're, they're neglecting to mention the album that we're going to talk about. Oh, it was Love in Exile <laughs> that I probably... Yeah, there's still not a lot out there on this album, though. Yeah. It's... Right. It's out there pretty cheap, and there's copies out there, but like, it doesn't seem like it made a, a big splash. And which yeah. is interesting, because like, I looked at his discography on All Music, and they have glowing reviews of a lot of his other albums. They love Killer on the Rampage, Walking on Sunshine, and there's, like, there's no review or even picture for Love in Exile. It's like even the fans of Eddie Grant have just completely forgotten about this record, it would seem. I think, especially in the U.S., you know, like we were saying earlier, he's he's known for Electric Avenue and maybe Romancing the Stone, but you know, in other parts of the world, I think he's he's a lot more well known. Especially at that time, he had hits with the Equals in Europe and stuff. So he he was kind of a known entity abroad, but he he did really didn't break here until you know Electric Avenue. Yeah, and. That came out in 1982 on his sixth album, Killer on the Rampage. Blew up first with I Don't Want to Dance, but that didn't. That became eclipsed a hundred times by the song Electric Avenue. That made it to number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Do you know what song kept it out of number one in July of 1983? Is it Billie Jean? No, but that. He said this in an interview, and now I'm blanking on it. It was I can't remember. Flash Dance, What a Feeling by Irene Cara, <laughs> who, just, <laughs> who just recently passed away. Huh. Yep, that was the one song that kept 
Eddie Grant for, from the top of the charts. It is interesting how that works sometimes where these legendary songs didn't actually hit number one and the the, the song that was number one maybe isn't quite as loved anymore. <laughs> oh, you don't think so? I, I don't know. I, maybe people love Flashdance as much as Electric Avenue still. For me, it's all about Electric <laughs> Avenue between those two. But <laughs> Yeah. Eddie did credit Electric Avenue along with Michael Jackson's Billie Jean as two instrumental songs and breaking the color barrier on MTV where it was a bunch of white people's videos for a while and those two songs kind of broke through that. They were definitely two of the first and apparently um, they, were, they had the same director for Billie Jean and for Electric Avenue. And for me as a kid um, growing up in the 80s, I remember that video so vividly like i remember it making an impression on me you know being somebody growing up in in the south in the u.s and eddie grant was like he was probably the first dude that i ever saw with dreadlocks you know and i was just kind of like what is this this music is so compelling and the video was really cool with the guy on the motorcycle and him stepping into this pool of water off of his couch it really made an impression so I remember that video being a very early MTV memory. Yeah, it was it was big on on the old MTV back then. Eddie then decides after he's gone uh, mega hit to move to Barbados and that's where he starts Blue Wave Studio in Barbados which he's still running to this day, I believe. And he's had bunch of big artists, the Rolling Stones and Mick Jagger both recorded there, Elvis Costello, Sting, Mariah Carey. So a lot of big names have come through and, and recorded at a studio, so that was cool. I also read he he started a record plant there as well, so he kind of built a whole vertical like mini monopoly of Vertically integrated. <laughs> yeah, like he writes the songs and he records them in his studio. Then he like prints them up <laughs> at his own vinyl factory. So I thought that was kind of cool. And it's kind of in line with part of the reason you don't find his music on the streaming services is that he's in control of all of it. And he learned early on from you know, his dad's friends and different mentors early on with the equals that keeping the songwriting credit and all that is super important, the publishing credits. So he got all that for his material and he controls how it's released, who gets it. So it's not out there on the streaming platforms where artists get paid literal peanut shells for for their music. <laughs> One peanut shell for every million downloads. Yeah. I mean, I hate, I, I, I totally get that. I, I don't blame him at all. I just wish his music was a little more available because it's so good. And I think if people could get their ears on it easier, you know, we'd have more Eddie Grant fans. Yeah, he does. He kind of seems to be shooting himself in the foot a little bit there. Similarly with... His ring bang thing that he's been pushing for a while now. Ooh, you... Ring bang, man! It took us a long time to get to ring bang. <laughs> well, that's where it comes yeah, in the he, timeline. He... he didn't. The ring bang stuff didn't start till like the late eighties, I think. Mm -hmm. I, th I thought it was the nineties, actually. Yeah, nineties but... maybe. He he actually okay. trademarked it. Yeah. Uh, the name ring bang. So, but that's kept it from my understanding from really taking off as like so ring bang he envisions is kind of like both a genre, but also like a lifestyle and an image. And it's like this whole thing in his it's like mind. It's a pan-Caribbean sort of vibe to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and like musically, it's supposed to kind of unite all the styles of African music and have this like continental identity of music. It's a very lofty concept, mm -hmm. very cool, but he also did call it ring bang. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and it kind of sounds like what the quote from the top that 
about his kind of his lack of specific genre mm-hmm. that he performs. It, mm-hmm. it, it sounded like his ring bang theory. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but then he trademarked it. So when people are pushing a genre or whatever and they like sing it in their songs, but nobody can do that with Ring Bang other than his artists. So it's like he's got all this control over who can use Ring Bang and in what context. Are we going to get in trouble for mentioning it on this podcast? <laughs> yeah, oh. we got an Eddie's Express permission to talk about Ring Bang. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> if you're an attorney, a copyright attorney, <laughs> please reach out to us at ibuythatpodcast at gmail.com. Let's play another song. Sure thing. What do we got next, Shane? Uh, we're going to do a song called Preaching Genocide. This is Side B, track one. Oh, yeah. This is a catchy little number. about the time that i got to that song in previewing this album that i started to wonder why eddie grant isn't a name thrown around by young activists and revolutionaries like man it seems like he was leaning heavy on the topical songwriting on this record yeah he one thing he does though often with these songs is that if you're not listening to the words, you aren't. You're not gonna know it's a political song. Yeah, that was a pretty upbeat, catchy song about genocide that we just heard. <laughs> yeah, right. About the yeah, it's got that that slippery bass line, and you know, I mean, it it hints at that at the tension, you know, like the South Africa sort of uh, tension that was going on at that time. Even in the music, you know, has that sort of township uh, jazz feel to it but yeah it's like the melody is so chipper and then when you tune in what he's to what he's talking about it's like oh okay <laughs> he's got a message here you know I, I guess mainly what i'm wondering is why all the hippie parties i attended in the 2000s had paul simon's graceland as the soundtrack <laughs> instead of this album <laughs> well, that's just because your friends were dumb Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> i guess i all of Jeremy's right friends in. have been listening to Eddie Grant since day one. Yeah. <laughs> I walked right into that one, didn't I? Your friends are probably cooler than me, Peter. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, his final hit song 
was an anti-apartheid song, Gimme Hope Joanna, which had a similar like upbeat vibe, but it's like a very serious political I, song. I think I had actually, I checked that one out and I think I had heard that one before. That, yeah, it's a, it was a big, big tune at that time for sure. I remember when that came out and my buddy had the cassette, which he had pulled out of like one of those bargain bins uh, that all of the record stores had back in the day, just this like heap of cassettes and you could always find an Eddie Grant cassette in there. And he had that, he played that song to death. And uh, it was it was pretty big at that time. I remember hearing it in the 80s, the tail end of the, the 80s or early 90s, whenever that album came out. Yeah, so he he has like a bitiness in his vocals, but none of his political songs have like an aggressive feel at all, I feel like. Even like War Party that I referenced in my title from Killer on the Rampage, similar thing. It's kind of like catchy, makes your head kind of bob, but yeah. Police on my back, if you listen all the way back then, Sounds like just like a mod dance song, (laughs) but it's about the police harassing him every day of his life. Yeah, he wrote the first fuck the police, Yeah, is what we're saying. (laughs) Well, I'm sure there's a blues song that goes earlier than that on that, but... Sure. True. Uh, The other thing I was going to point out about this tune is, again, like if you look at the track, at the players on the back, he played almost everything on here except for the horns and the congas. And we, again, hear that, like, mix of, like, as I was commenting while it was playing, the, the, that synth bass that, like, slips in with the real bass and just adds this kind of flavor that's kind of, like, distinctly his. And, and then, like you mentioned with his vocals, too, he does this thing where he, he layers his voice in such a way. He doesn't have, like, a super strong voice, really, if you, if you, you know, want to get technical about it. But the way he uses it and layers it um, and just has these melodies that are like easy to sing and they get stuck in your head. I mean, I'll take an interesting voice over a strong voice any day. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've listened to a lot of The Fall, which is, <laughs> you know, a guy ranting over Mark repetitive- Smith, the strongest of vocalists. He's <laughs> ranting over repetitive grooves, but- there, there's something to that too you know yeah like i've kind of really loved this album when i the songs just kept going and going and going and i'm like oh man we're still in this and just you get lost yeah he really gets cooking he really get cooks it up and, and keeps it going keeps the groove going and a lot of that is the disco tradition that he's still kind of working in at this point too and we talked about the, you know the extended jams that have the long solos at the end and the percussion stuff like that, that that's all standard disco material tricks and there's more to Eddie Grant but we're kind of running out of time here so I'll just lastly mention that he's put out 15 studio albums as recently as 2017, he put out an album called Placence about his hometown in Guyana. And he is currently working on an autobiography and chilling in Barbados. And successfully suing Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. I d- oh, true. I did see that. Yeah. Was that for using, was it Electric Avenue that? Donald Trump had used without permission. Yeah, in a recent campaign rally, and Eddie sued him. Hell yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we'll move right along, because that's the second episode in a row that we That brought... Sean has brought up a Trump <laughs> Donald thing. Trump, yeah. Are you guys getting concerned yet? <laughs> uh, so instead of talking about that, Sean, can you talk about some similar albums? <laughs> I would love to. Uh, Grace Jones, as mentioned... Not all of her records are dollar bin these days, but Warm Leatherette from 1980, if you can find a, a good cheap copy, would be a great place to start. Similar, you know, disco club dance music, but with a real menace and bite to it and a whole lot of influence and that kind of Caribbean background going on. There's a lot of comparisons there. Next suggestion, a record that I believe I've recommended before and is definitely on my list of future albums, Mattia Clifford, Star Fell from Heaven from 1976. Mattia is a musician from Zimbabwe that 
did a similar thing of just combining all of these different dance music traditions into his own unique thing and just doesn't get any credit. Yeah, and I don't know that one at all. Yeah, it's it seems to be fully off most people's radar, so we got to do it. Got to enlighten people. All right. Third suggestion, the recently featured Exuma. I'm going to recommend his 1979 album Street Music, which features some of these same kind of Caribbean influences, a Saka song on it, which we didn't even get into it, but Eddie Grant has a strong Saka music connection. You know, it's funny. I was just the other night watching the 1970 film Joe starring Peter Boyle and a very young Susan Sarandon. And the in that, Susan Sarandon and her boyfriend are living in some kind of like rundown apartment in the big city and they are listening to their radio and I recognized the voice on it. I was trying to place it. I was initially thinking Richie Havens and then it occurred to me that's Exuma that they're listening yeah. to. Oh, <laughs> nice. Far out. <laughs> yeah. I just picked up that soundtrack actually. <laughs> that was a dollar bin fine. For the Joe soundtrack? Yeah, it's got it's mostly like Jerry Butler. There's like a twelve minute Jerry Butler jam on there, but yeah, Exuma has a track. <laughs> yep. That would be it. All right, and I have one bonus recommendation. Not dollar bin, but you can probably find a lot of his stuff for like less than twenty bucks, you know. But if you're into the political Caribbean music side of things, I highly recommend checking out at least the first few records by Linton Quesi Johnson. Forces of Victory, bass culture, amazing, very political, very cool reggae-influenced music. Radical. Well, thank you, Sean. And Mr. Shane, while you're here, is yes, there sir. anything you'd like to mention? I uh, just want to give a shout-out to the bands that I've played with. i played with a couple bands around here. Uh, one called the Old Ceremony. Where's, where is where called... is round here, Shane? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm d- I'm down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yes. And uh, I also play with a band called Dynamite Brothers, who, who has an offshoot uh, country project that you guys may be hearing about in the near future called Them Carolina Boys. Um, <laughs> also do a weekly uh, DJ spot um, at a place here in Carborough called the Speakeasy called, uh, the Vinyl Escape. And we have some really good, uh, funk and soul DJs. Uh, sometimes it's all reggae. You never know what you're going to get, but it's going to be good. Um, that's every Friday evening from 10 until closing. Very cool. So if you're down in the cool part of North Carolina, am I allowed to say that? Is that the yeah, you can say it. <laughs> it's official. If you're in the cool part of North Carolina, go check out one of Shane's bands or go to the DJ night. Go dance a little. I really hope someone comes up to you at one of these gigs, Shane, is like, I found out, I found out about you and I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> I would love that, man. I, I really hope that happens. All right, well, make it happen, folks. If you live within driving distance, get down there, tell them we sent you. Dance your ass off. Have a good time. Awesome. Well, thanks for bringing us Eddie. Absolutely. And what uh, song would you like to go out on? So I want to take it out on the the actual only reggae tune, quote unquote, on this album, Exiled. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think of Eddie Grant as a reggae artist, but, you know, clearly he does a lot more than that. But he always has some good reggae in the mix. And, uh, I picked this, I think we decided on this one, and and uh, I wanted to point out that the string arrangement on here is just amazing, and it's one of those things, it's like, how does this work? This is kind of like this lo-fi sort of reggae track, but he has this crazy elaborate string arrangement that just blows my mind every time I hear it. So keep your ears peeled for that. Brilliant. And remember... To check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Sign up now. Now. February is disappearing rapidly. It's a short month. Sign up now. Cool. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm co-host Peter. I'm co-host Sean. And I'm guest host Shane Hartman. Farewell. Farewell.